All right, it's Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. Uh, this week, we have in Rene Rizepi, chef owner of Noma in Copenhagen. He just came out with his third cookbook, The Noma Guide to Fermentation, uh, along with the head of the restaurant's fermentation lab, David Zilber. Rene and I talk about how he and David wrote this book and how it's actually designed for home cooks, how you can do what they do at Noma. And after that, I sit down with senior associate food editor, Molly Boss, to talk about one of her recent recipes, pumpkin bread with salted maple butter. It is insanely good. And if you like what you hear from Molly, uh, check her out on our highly entertaining YouTube channel. Uh, Just go to YouTube, search for Bon Appetit, and you'll see Molly and our other test kitchen editors like Andy and Carla and Chris and Claire, you name them. They're in the kitchen cooking. But... Before we get started, a reminder to send in any Thanksgiving questions you have, along with your name and where you live, to bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. And in an upcoming Thanksgiving episode, Cara Music might answer your question on air. Like, how do you get stuffing that's both moist and super crispy? How do you cook the dark meat through on your turkey? without overcooking the white meat, all those questions. Uh, We want to hear from you, so send us in your questions, and we will do our best to answer them. All right, so hit us up at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Now let's get to the show. Here is Renee Redzepi. All right, Renee, uh, we're flying without headphones. You're still wearing yours. (laughs) (laughs) What'd you have for breakfast this morning? A yogurt. With flax seeds and a turkey broth. Tur- yeah, all right. But not, not in the yogurt. No. <laughs> Have <laughs> you thought about that? <laughs> no. <laughs> so you got that in the, in the Bon Appetit test kitchen. You were just down there sh- shooting some Instagram stories. Um, it's interesting. With your new book, a lot of what you talk about is how to bring home the techniques from Noma regarding fermentation. And one of the first things I wonder is, like, well, at your own home in Copenhagen, what do you bring home sort of fermentation? We're lucky because... We can just take from the restaurant, and we have everything. Some of the things that we use the most in our home, they are the meat garums. So garums, they're sort of a, a potent sauce, similar to a fish sauce, a Thai fish sauce that most people know of. Just imagine that done with meat, and in a more European style. A little less funky, I would say. And you can do them with beef, and we have one with chicken wing that tastes like the juices in the bottom of roast chicken. Oh, it gets all concentrated exactly. and like a little sticky almost. That mixed with soy and mixed with acidity and then some more nuance to it. So we use that quite a bit. Um, we also have some, uh, we call them our misos, even though they're not really a, a strict miso as you know it from Japan. Uh, we do them with yellow peas. Yeah. So they taste different. Uh, we use that at home a lot as well. A lot. And then we have some vinegars. Vinegars are so practical to use at home. You know, I, it's funny because I think the average home cook, at least speaking for American home cooks, we don't use vinegar that much. We use like in salad dressing. Mm-hmm. And then we're always like, well, what else are we supposed to do with it? Yeah. You know? Yeah. P- people probably use lemon, I would say, right? If they yeah, want to. Lemon juice. Yeah. Lemon and, juice, yeah. But we don't, I, don't, I don't think we add it to our cooked foods as much as we can or it's should. It's a shame. I mean, obviously, if you are only used to having white wine vinegar. Yeah. And that's quite acidic and you don't fully understand the range of vinegars already available and how to use them you know that you need to do and get a, uh, get comfortable with um, then it's an incredible way of cooking and to use in your cooking and to me it's better than than lemon juice say 
Let so, me, so give me an idea. All right, so I'm at home as a home cook. How should I be using vinegar in ways that I'm probably not right now? Well, a, a dash of vinegar can add that thing to just about anything. Yeah. Even the breakfast yogurt. <laughs> Isn't it weird? I, I feel like your palate, even if you don't know, I feel like your palate knows. Like I was at a, I'm not going to name one the restaurant, but I was at a, a very nice Italian restaurant here the other day, mm-hmm. and it just felt like everything was really. Just olive oily, mm-hmm. and I love olive oil, but there wasn't that other element mm-hmm. to sort of like wake up the dish, and that could have done it. I mean, yeah. a dash of vinegar here could have done it, but but for instance, for breakfast today, we had, uh, uh, like I said, the flax seeds and yogurt. I know that it would be amazing if there was drops of old balsamico on yeah. top. That's also a vinegar, so a little sweet, a little sour. That would have been amazing for that. And uh, let's just take the example of a fairly old balsamic vinegar and name me one thing that wouldn't go to uh, that wouldn't go with i mean yeah. your steak your cooked fish your yeah. salad your ice cream ice cream yeah. your yogurt <laughs> i mean it's strawberries just, yeah it's simply so good and lifts just about anything so that's an example that's pretty easy to understand and then you have different levels of, of vinegars at your disposal in a in a fairly good supermarket and then you learn how to cook with that where they're more sour or they're more fruity and then you understand slowly, slowly how to add it to just about anything, and it actually yeah. does lift things. Now, we make our own vinegars at the restaurant, and we make vinegars from just about anything and also in different levels of sourness. So some, they are we call them fresh vinegars. They'll last like a month. We have one that's made from fennel in the, in the season when the fennel green's everywhere, and it's bright jet green, and it's like concentrated fennel juice but with vinegar kick to it. Wow. And it's not sour enough to be sh- uh, shelf-stable for a long time. But for the month that we have it on, it's simply perfect. Uh, you, you just said slowly, slowly. And what I like about your book, a lot of things I like about your book, but one of the first things you mentioned in the introduction is that when you first started getting into fermentation, at least scientifically speaking, you, you didn't know what you were doing. No. You were just like, let's, let's, see, what, let's see what happens. Well, as many things in our restaurant, they have, uh, you know, everything that we've done basically is through accident. And, um, but, we how, were, but how do you do that when you're charging customers money to come in and eat your food? But, you know, we were lucky because at, at that time, 15 years ago, with the no social media, yeah. that was a time when you could fool around for a couple of years. You know, we were a tiny little restaurant. It wasn't that expensive. Tiny team, not many guests. I will also say, I mean, we had many days where we'd have like five, eight guests for dinner. Lunches would be zero. It was a common thing. And so fooling around was just what everybody did. It was accepted to yeah. not know 100% what you wanted to do for at least three to five years. It's funny. When you, so you, there was an episode on Bourdain's show a few years ago when he goes to Copenhagen. And he's hanging out with you. And you guys had that moment in the kitchen where various chefs are allowed to sort of create dishes and, and serve them to the team. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, you made the point that, like, oh, yeah, we're not going to put these on the menu. Like, mm-hmm. that's, that's not even a consideration, but it gives the chefs a chance to sort of stretch their and, – and, and, mm-hmm. and, and grow and, and try things out. And that you have that sort of – that wiggle room and that luxury to experiment, that mm-hmm. not everything has to be perfect mm-hmm. right out of the gate. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's to give the cooks this idea that – you know, you got to start training yourself because you have all these ideas in your mind. And yeah. then when you put them on a plate, suddenly the first time you do that, it happens to everyone. They're like, oh, that isn't really what I was thinking to myself in my mind. That yeah. doesn't actually taste the way I thought it would be. How much of a chef is 
the creative process and how much of it is a, a skill set? Mm, I mean, I guess it depends a little bit of what type of restaurant you're in because if you're in a restaurant where you know, you're following a strict format and it's classical, you should yeah. say, then you need skills, you need precision, you need to, to execute. execute. Yeah. Um, and then, but if you are in a place where, where the chef suddenly says, you know that bra blanc that we've been doing for the past 10 years, tomorrow you're going to do something else. And uh, I'm waiting for to see what happens tomorrow. That, <laughs> and, all of a sudden, and yeah. all of a sudden, if you've just been doing the same thing every day and you never thought of how to do things differently, yeah. then you freeze, you know? So in our kitchen, our restaurant, we want to do, try to do things differently and try to push all the time. And so activating people's imagination and activating that sense of opportunity that they can see opportunity, that takes a while. Yeah. And to some, they actually never get there, to tell the truth. Some people, they're more happy just following a strict format. Yeah. But as, as, as in a restaurant kitchen that's so based on precision, you need those certain number of people. Sure. Who can, who can yeah, just yeah, execute absolutely. What, it, what the yeah, dish is. Absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, in our, in, in for instance, in, the, in these, uh, we call them Saturday night projects. In this uh, format here where all the cooks, they, they have to cook something. There was a few years ago, there was um, a chef, her name is Mete. And she was doing these wild things. I mean, completely wild things, but they worked. There was there was a cabbage dessert, and it sounds so odd, so weird, so almost disgusting, but it actually worked. And I I, I don't know how she did it. And today she's a head of our test kitchen. Oh wow! So this is also our way to see okay who's got that thing. Yeah. And maybe she's got that thing. All right. So. The book, Manoma Guide to Fermentation, I was reading it this weekend. And um, first of all, a lot of words in the book. I, As a writer, editor, I'm like, wow, how did you, like, th it's a lot. How, what was that process like? Because you're not just explaining what how you cook and what you like, but you're also trying to explain fermentation, which is a complex mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. So what was that writing process like in terms of getting this all in the book? Well, I mean, it was a very complex one because at first uh, it was very, way too technical. Yeah. Um, David, uh, the co-author, was uh, responsible for figuring out what of the technical stuff needed to be in there. Um, and uh, it was very technical, uh, too technical. We wanted from the get-go to make sure that this was a book that actually gave people uh, some idea of the technicalities of it, but at the same time were holding onto their hands in, in the kitchen, you know, saying, okay, yeah. we got you, don't worry about this. Um, so it uh, was at first probably double the size no as a way. book. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's because right now we're at, can't count the pages, we're at 452 yeah. pages. Uh, maybe not yeah. exactly double, but yeah. it was probably 200 pages more. Wow. Just in text, dense, thick, text on how to explain uh, you know, lactic acid fermentation or what that means yeah. and, and so on and so on. And you don't actually need that to get st get uh, started. Yeah, I mean, your goal, you want people to do this. Yeah. And, and I, I think what's successful about the book as a writer, what you guys did really well is that you acknowledged early on that you didn't know what you were doing and that you slowly learned along the way. And I, and I think the way you explain it then comes more from the position of a student than mm -hmm. the quote-unquote master. Mm -hmm. it, it's not overly complex. I mean, I'm going to read one, one line uh, from here. Um, you say, um, there's a thin line between rot and fermentation, and that line might best be understood as an actual line, like the kind you'd find outside a nightclub. Mm -hmm. <laughs> rot is a club where everyone gets in, 
colon, bacteria and fungi, safe or unsafe, flavor enhancing or destructive. Mm -hmm. When you ferment something, you're taking on the role of a bouncer, mm -hmm. keeping out unwanted microbes and letting in the ones that are going to make the party pop. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, I get that. Yeah. I understand that. Um, <laughs> That's actually Dave's line, that one. It was a good one. <laughs> yeah. But, I, but I, I feel like that tone is throughout the book, Yeah, where it feels like I'm just talking to you right here. We're at a bar. We're talking, yeah. and you're explaining it to me in a way that is relatable as a home cook who's tentative but is interested in getting That's involved. what we wanted. Yeah. Uh, we wanted it to be like this. We made a special effort. I mean, uh, we also had a brilliant editor on it, yep. uh, Chris Ying. Oh, Chris Ying, yeah. He's uh, been the editor on it, so he was also uh, a tremendous guide. And he's a great writer and, and has a great voice. And he's an exceptional writer, and yeah. he understood. He was one of the first ones to say, guys, hang on a little bit. You know, you got to just calm down and, and let, let's work on this. And so through uh, the editing and through the, the publisher's work, I feel we come out with something for the first time from WrestleNoma that people can actually cook from. People yeah. can take it home and use. And it's not like it's not cooking made easy, but it is, it is fermentation made understandable. And, and, and you, if you want to do it, you can. Yeah. I mean, uh, no, it's not easy in the sense that, okay, uh, there, here's a 10-minute uh, sort of recipe and, and, and then I'll be eating something deliciously fermented. No. Yeah. First of all, it takes time. Yeah, I mean, it might take you a little bit uh, of time just to mix ingredients, but then you have to wait. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very analog thing to do, actually. You have to I use mean, your I was, hands. I was thinking about that. Do you think that <clears throat> fermentation is having this moment? I don't want to say a moment, but it, it, it sort of has it's a resurgence it, as a direct sort of response to these sort of very over-technological times we live in now, that people want something that's not on a screen that's not their iPhone, that's not get you can get yeah. right this second by tapping something. Mm -hmm. I think it's a part of it, and I really, really do. I mean, there's you, you're just gonna have to wait if you want a lactic acid fermentation of blueberries. It will take you five days probably. Yeah. Five and maybe it works, days. maybe it doesn't. And you're not guaranteed. No, you you gotta attend to it as well. And who wants to wait for five days for something to download? You know, know. that was in the early days of <laughs> uh, of the internet, but. Uh, I I do believe that I do believe that that uh, that people are yearning for something that's away from the telephone where they can actually feel something where yeah. they can touch something. To me, when we do fermentation, it reminds me of when I was younger, and I went to the record store and I'd wait. Uh, oh God, and man. I'd be there for hours and I would read every single word on the back of these records and I would follow it and then I'd save up money and you know for the next three months and then when I had the money I'd buy that one record yeah I remember been... I would go to the store like wait I thought the new Clash record was supposed to be out today they're like oh well we didn't get it you gotta wait till next week yeah. and you're like what <laughs> you know like what do you mean I have to wait so that 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 sort of feeling is um, that's fermentation yeah. to me now let's talk about uh, what I mean Let's talk about fermentation and the actual taste and how much your palate has changed mm -hmm. since you've gotten into fermentation. And now, like I said, if you're cooking at home, how reflexively you'll reach for something fermented that you might not have 20 years ago when you were a young chef learning to cook. Mm. Well, I mean, 20 years ago, I did use ferments in kitchens because I was trained in a classic French food. And, uh, you know, wine yeah. is a proponent. And that's a ferment. People forget about that. People forget that coffee is ferment, cheese, bread, croissants, etc. So we actually have it close uh, to our lives already. But but you uh, make a point in this book that you're not getting into those. No, those no, no, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. Because the point here is to expand on everything that we have and build new flavors. So to us, 
at Noma, we started out as a very simple restaurant. You know, at first we discovered the wilderness. We became known as a foraging restaurant. With time, we wanted to figure out a way to, to take all these ingredients and bring them into the next season. And that's when we start dabbling into, at first we call it just the, the sort of the pickled cuisine or mm-hmm. uh, jarring up, you know, we thought it would be like making dill pickles or something. And then slowly but surely we, we start um, figuring out that the world of fermentation is something very sophisticated. And you can learn uh, all throughout the world from different cultures that are doing this. And so we got hooked. And I remember the first time where I understood this is something special. It was uh, one of our cooks. He put out a spoon in front of me and there was this murky liquid. And I tried it and it tasted like gooseberries. But it tasted like gooseberries in a way that I never had before. And to me, there was extraordinary. Um, you know, at that point, I was like 35 years old and I'd eaten gooseberries all my life. I thought I knew them, and suddenly there, there they were as something completely new. That was a starting point for us to develop. And today we have more than, well, more than 100 things that we use daily in our kitchens. You say you'll use something fermented in every course. That's every, what you every single thing. Do you I think mean, that has come to define Noma more than foraging, which was celebrated 10 years ago? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, foraging is a completely naturalized part of, of who we are. Yeah. But in every single serving, every season, you will have for, uh, fermented foods, not foraged foods, yeah. for instance. I mean, sometimes when people come and eat with us now, they're like, wow, it's so simple. But there was this flavor. It was just, how did you get that flavor in it? And that's that drop of something. Yeah, which took six months. To yeah, make, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, some of the things that we have in the book, we've developed over the last 10 years. Some of the things have taken well, years. It's so interesting with like adding, when people talk about simple foods and you know, people always bring up Italian food is so simple. and. You could have Parmesan cheese and prosciutto. And it's like, well, yeah, but that Parmesan cheese took three years to yeah, make. And the prosciutto it. was hanging for two years that's aging. It. And like that depth of flavor is a result of your dish actually took three years to it's make. Not, not fifteen, not 15 minutes. That's it. That, there's so much craft. And I mean, uh, another example of, of uh, fermentation and how well it works, um, because cheese is fermented too. The, yeah. the Parmesan is a product of ferment, is, of course, uh, soy sauce. And everybody, all of us, we had a nigiri, a piece of sushi, without soy on it. And it's like something is missing, and you just have your dip of soy, or the chef, he brushes soy on it, and then that's what makes the magic. And so suddenly it's not just cooked rice and a slice of fish on top. Suddenly it's like this bite where everything comes together. It all makes sense. It all makes sense. You you wrote in the book about how a lot of this is innate to who we are as human beings, that, you Mm -hmm. know, you're innately sort of trained to like, all right, stay away from rotten meat and that the roast meat's going to smell delicious. And that sweet, ripe fruit is what attracts you, your taste mm-hmm. buds to something that's good as opposed to something that's bitter and perhaps poisonous. I do wonder if we've, as a society, have sort of overrode this system in that now what tastes good to us is actually not good for us mm. and that we're attracted to what's bad for us, if that makes sense. Yeah. Long discussion, <laughs> long discussion. But um, I mean, of course, we like things that are sweet yeah. and full of fat, and and we can get those type of calories. Uh, you know, we're poised to to want them because when we found found them in nature, uh, when we we're hunter hunters and gatherers, it would be quick calories. You know, we'd we'd yeah. actually be able to uh, survive longer probably. Um, today, food is so ready available that we need strict control of how we eat. We need to be mindful of how we eat. But as a chef, and you're running a restaurant that 
people reserve six months ahead of time, et cetera, et cetera, pay a lot of money. They, they I imagine, coming wanting some of those lush, rich moments, but also want to be sort of taken somewhere they haven't been before, food-wise. So how do you balance that? Like, all right, we want to give them something really, mm, that's delicious right away, but we also want to give them something new. Yeah. Oof. I mean, if I had the perfect formula for that, uh, I wouldn't uh, stress as much as I do because <laughs> <clears throat> you're right. I mean, um, at the end of the day, I think a lot of people, they just really love steak and a brownie. Uh, yeah, they're good. Yeah, it's so good. And uh, and so when they go to a restaurant and they sit for hours and eat this long meal and they're like, why do they serve me this? I don't like this. We worry about these things. Yeah. Um, but we have always been a restaurant that want to push. So by now, I think people know that if they're coming to a restaurant Noma, you know, it's going to be delicious food the way we see it as deliciousness. Yeah. But I think it's interesting. I think it's very much within your context. I went to a, a, a benefit dinner a few years ago um, for Mad Symposium at 11 Madison Park, and you were cooking, and Chang was doing the dish, and Daniel Hume, and Alex Atala. And it was interesting because Chang did something very Changy, and I forget what it was, but, you know, Delicious. Whom did his famous duck dish, lacquered duck. Uh, Atala did a, a hearts of palm pasta, sort of rich and delicious. Your dish was, I felt, it was on a completely different frequency, taste wise, hmm. and it was an interesting experience. I can't remember what we did. It, there was some lichen in there. It was kind of green and dusty, but it, it was, <laughs> it was just the 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 flavors and the profile in your mouth were so different than the other three. It was almost hard to understand out of the context of hmm. Noma, where you're in this world and there's 20 courses and they all sort of make sense. Um, and I just thought it was an interesting taste experience about what we expect something to taste like and what mm-hmm. we expect from a yummy, delicious thing and yeah. in, in, in that mindset. And it, and it felt like, again, you were sort of taking us somewhere where the other chefs weren't. And that's not a good or bad thing. It was just sort of you went left, they went right. Yeah. Well, I mean, in in a time where things are so similar, I mean, you can walk down the walking street of most cities in Europe or America, and there will be the same stores. Same exact stores. We were just talking about this with Instagram. Chefs in St. Louis, Missouri, or Oklahoma City yeah. know exactly what you're doing yeah. every day. Yeah, every day. Nothing, things are new for a brief second mm-hmm. today. Um, I really like the fact that things are different. I like the fact that you know you go places and you're like, oh, I'm not sure about this, but this is the culture here. This is what yeah. people do. I'm actually learning something new, and people eat in a different way. I would like to keep that a little bit, and uh, and uh, so that it doesn't become just the same. Yeah. Which there is a big risk of in food always. You know, trends they go so fast, and everything are these big brands, and they travel the world quickly and as you say through social media um trends are sort of just uh, spreading even quicker than than before yeah i think there's a good and bad in that i think what's interesting at least in america you can go to these smaller cities now and i think the quality of food is better than it than it's ever been but you definitely lose some of that regionality mm-hmm. you know like there's as we kind of joke, like Brooklyn is everywhere now. I could be in the middle of the country mm-hmm. and I could feel like I'm in some restaurant that could be easily in, be in Brooklyn. Um, yeah, uh, and and the idea of seasonality. I mean, you can have spring every day of the year if you want to. As you got more into fermenting, mm-hmm. why did you get so curious to understand the science of it as opposed to just like, oh, that's delicious, that's not. Mm-hmm. I've, I've got 20 other things to do. Mm-hmm. I can't get bogged down in this. Well, knowing the science of it made us understand sort of... Uh, 
you know, what is a protein? When you figure out that when you do a fish sauce, it's uh, a protein-rich ingredient that you need to add to the mix. And then at one point, when you understand that, you're, you're thinking to yourself, okay, can we put meat in there then? Could we actually put it, do it with uh, grasshoppers? So that uh, gave us a base understanding through you know, our desire to, to get a, a level deeper uh, into this. What has really taken us to the many next levels is the fact that we built this facility just for fermentation. And today there are people in there that are complete specialists. I mean, they know 10 times more than I do about the science. Um, my job is to be in the middle and, and figure out, okay, I like this a lot. Let's yeah. bring this into the kitchen and see what we can do with it. What hasn't worked? A few things. Oof. A few examples. Well, the worst, <laughs> the worst is blood. Blood. Yeah. <laughs> Fermented blood. Yeah. <laughs> Explain. Uh, it's uh, it was it's really disgusting actually. It's uh, so you know uh, we we were trying to do inspired by fish sauce, uh -huh. and we wanted to do it uh, with uh, say blood. It's a protein rich yeah. thing, and um, it's been sort of the holy grail in the test kitchen. Everybody that's gone in there, uh, they've had to give a go at it to see if they can make it work. And it's honestly, it's the most. It's like death itself. What kind of blood? A pig's blood, reindeer blood, yeah. all bloods. They, none of it and works. None of it works? No. Why, why do you think it doesn't work? Uh, we haven't understood it yet. Yeah. We haven't understood it. But it's um, for some reason, I mean, it just smells like all the worst smells in one. <laughs> Speaking of that, all right, let me ask me this. You're talking about sanitary issues and obviously having to understand those while fermenting. Um, what is the difference between funk and rotten? Oh, you know it. When I don't happening. know. I don't know if I do. Yeah, but <laughs> you will know it. And <laughs> there's no. I mean, it's uh, obviously as you as you get into fermenting, it's like when you start cooking at first and you figure out what's a fresh fish. Yeah. You know. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. It's um, you will know the difference. Um, th of course, when you deal with these long, slow uh, processes. There are some rules that you need to be careful uh, to, to really uh, upheld. So we have a big chapter on it in, in the book where we talk about this factor that you need to take have some rules and you need to follow them. Yeah, and you, you make the point that you might have spent five weeks making this ferment, but if it smells like it's bad, mm -hmm. it's not risk. It's not worth risking. Mm -hmm. You just got to dump it. You just got to dump it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and there goes Absolutely. five weeks. And that's the, that, but that's how it is. That's how it is. I mean... There, there will be mistakes in the beginning. Obviously, it's. I always say that learning how to cook, uh, in this case, learning how to ferment. But I think they they are the same. Is like starting to exercise again, and at first it's not really the most, you know, uh, it's a little hard to get yeah, over to over that fun. line. Yeah. You know, once you get over that line, you can't be without it. But that's where it's. And then it comes easier. But you are at this point where fermentation is so ingrained into your cooking life now. Uh, whether you're at home, whether you're at the restaurant, what haps, happens like you're in America and Canada right now going on a book tour mm -hmm. and you're going out to eat or you've got to grab a quick bite somewhere. Mm -hmm. Are you always like, oh, I could really use some fish sauce right now? Do you carry oh, around little man. packets with you? No, what do you do? <laughs> For me, it's probably more like uh, cabbages, kimchi, stuff like that. Uh -huh. When I mean, honestly, it's going to sound crazy, but you know, we're mostly in a car, in a plane, 
or yeah. like right now sitting talking to someone like you. But so what do you? But if you're running through an airport, yeah. I mean, what do you like? All right, what did you have for dinner last night? Last night, well, I was lucky. It was our, f- our only night off last night on the entire tour. Uh, so I actually had uh, a Korean food at a certain uh, very famous Korean chef here in town. Oh, okay. At his home. <laughs> oh, there you go. That's not bad. <laughs> not bad. Uh, a, ho- a home-cooked meal by Mr. David Chang. It was uh, very good. Not the word. That's, that's, that's kind of thing you win at an auction. <laughs> um, and then what did you have for lunch yesterday? Or where were you at? Were you in what no. city were you in? So yesterday we were in Chicago, mm-hmm. and uh, we left, uh, you know, the the wonderful uh, world of uh, American uh, traffic. So we left 10:30 Chicago uh, hotel, our hotel. We left 10:30 at our hotel, and then we arrived here. I think it was 6:30 at night. Oh God, that's yeah. not good. No, but yeah. this is the world you guys live in. <laughs> it's not my fault. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I can relate to that. Speaking of exercise, are you are you a fitness guy? Do you have time to exercise every? I do every morning. We have a team. Uh, we have actually have a trainer every morning at the restaurant that has two teams. Oh wow! So everybody can go, and there's approximately fifteen to twenty of our team that does it minimum three days a week, and I try to do it minimum three days a week too. You need it to have to go through what we go through. On a weekly basis. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a physical endurance working the line mm-hmm. and working in a kitchen mm-hmm. and everything have to, having to be exactly correct. Yeah, and then three kids. And yeah, and three kids and a spouse. It was interesting. I was uh, I went to when Noma was in Mexico last year. I was lucky enough to go one night with my wife, and what I found fascinating about the experience is, I mean, a it was beautiful. You're literally sitting in the sand and not in the sand, but your the tables are in the sand. You have your shoes off. It felt like the the food and the experience was so dialed in and so exacting on your part that the waiters and the staff who came to serve you were so relaxed because they knew we got this. Like mm-hmm. we 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 know exactly what we're doing and mm-hmm. we're not stressed. And if we're not stressed, you shouldn't be stressed either. Mm-hmm. And there was that that relaxation just sort of cascaded over the the whole experience. That's good. I'm yeah. happy to hear that. Yeah. Well, I mean. We're lucky to have a team, particularly you know the restaurant managers, the kitchen managers. We've worked together for a long time. Yeah, you could you could sense it. It was funny. We were there the last night, and I saw you briefly, and it looked like you had been carrying a lot of weight on your shoulders as the boss, though. Of In course. order for everyone else to be relaxed, someone's got to be absorbing some of that stress, I imagine. Of course, that's the burden of uh, being in charge. Is that at the end of the day, you're in charge. Yeah. So when things are wrong, it's your problem. Uh, when there's a direction, uh, a new direction, you gotta find it. And um, and if there are problems in within the team, and there that these things happen all the time. Oh I my mean, God! Yeah. Yeah. So you gotta solve it. You know, it's a small team. Well, we're a lot of people, but we're still a small team. So that's like that's the burden in in, in of being. Uh, the boss, I guess. Yeah. As James Brown said, you got to pay the cost to be the boss. <laughs> uh, Renee Rezepi, thanks so much for joining us on the Bon Appetit Foodcast. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks so much to Renee for coming on. You should go pick up a copy of the Noma Guide to Fermentation if you haven't already. And now, without further ado, here is Molly talking about her good for any time of day pumpkin bread with salted maple butter.
Molly Boz, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. So you did this um, pumpkin bread recipe that like everyone's freaking out over. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the deal? What's what's going on? Well, I'd like to say first of all that I think it's a bit of a misnomer because it's actually kind of a cake, and I think that's why people are freaking. out Okay, on the so yeah, uh, w- the difference between like zucchini bread, pumpkin bread, cake, like, if I, I I don't know. Well, I think that the reason they're called bread is because they're quick breads and they're they're baked in a loaf pan. Okay, but I think similarly with banana bread and zucchini bread. There's a lot of sugar and a lot of fat. and Which makes it so moist. Which makes it moist and makes it a cake. But we still call it pumpkin bread because that's as people know it. Yeah, I think the shape of it it's suggests, in a loaf. Yeah, suggests bread. It looks like a loaf of bread. However, is there such thing as like a savory pumpkin bread? Yeah, mm-hmm. I actually thought about that. I feel like there could be a version with like herbs and gruyere yeah, and see, like that. That would be pretty cool, right? That would be a bread. That's for 2019. Yeah, we'll do that next year. All right, so on the website, all right. A, a lot of positive reaction to this, yep. right? Looks looks cool on the Instagram. Apparently, it tastes good. Oh, I've never tasted it. Well, lucky for you. Every ta- I just made you a well, loaf. Because every Yeah, there's one right here. And every time I walked by the test kitchen, there was always like a warm loaf sitting on a cooling rack, kind of this tawny brown with encrusted on the top with little pepitas, pumpkin seeds that were kind of sugared and it's sparkling. So what I would do... Because you're like, oh, no, you can't have any yet. It's not oh, cool geez. yet. You're not allowed to slice into it. It's not cool yet. <laughs> that's a cool more. So I was like, okay, so I just, I would I would pick at the little pumpkin seeds. Okay, so that's why they were always half top. Yeah, so I, I've had a lot of the pumpkin <laughs> seeds, the little sugared pumpkin seeds, yeah, which are quite tasty. That's what's up. But before we get into this, I'm going to read, mmm, good pumpkin seed. Um, on the website, do you know what the, the head note says, as we call it, the little intro graph? Um, I, I think I wrote it, but I can't remember okay, what it says. I'm going to read you what you wrote. Pumpkin spice bread gets all grown up. Thanks to the addition of fresh ginger in this super-moist, no-fuss bread with a crunchy pumpkin seed topping. So let's talk about fresh ginger. Let's, or tell me about the bread. Like what? How did? Because obviously there's a lot of pumpkin bread recipes out there. What was your take? What was your uh, uh, approach into making one for BA? So I think that pumpkin spice mm-hmm. is a spice blend that people lean into a lot in the autumnal months. Usually not in a good way. Uh, yeah, I'm not really a big fan. I like think bad it's like, frappuccinos and yeah. I feel like someone probably has a scented candle with right. pumpkin spice. Just like, like weird muffins and like the pumpkin bread often is often just not as good as it can be. And so what I decided to do was t- take all of those spices that are normally in the pumpkin spice blend and use them in my own way. So instead of letting that blend aside like what ratio of clove to nutmeg to cinnamon was I was able to be more flexible by adding each of those spices separately and removing ginger ground ginger because I just don't believe in it you're just like what's the I'm point? just like fresh ginger is always better fresh ginger makes almost everything better right and I feel like you can go through a hand of fresh ginger in a week or oh, so you they're called hands yeah they're called hands yeah and you a just held container... up your hand to suggest that it looks like a hand it is they have little fingers coming out and everything yeah it's so much easier to go through a hand of fresh ginger than it is an entire spice question jar of dried ginger do you and then call it goes the little bits on the hand fingers or do you call them knobs like oh just no. a little f- a finger yeah they're Which, just no they're just two inch knobs. it's very halloweeny now we're like yeah. chopping off fingers and it's stuff. pretty spooky <laughs> okay so so then you're sort of you're separating out each spice. You want to get like the, the right level. Yeah, I don't need a pumpkin bread that is overwhelmingly flavored of nutmeg, for example. Like I feel like you need to use them all in balance. So 
There's a couple teaspoons. There's two teaspoons of cinnamon, ground cinnamon in this. There's a half a teaspoon of nutmeg, an eighth of a teaspoon of cloves, and then a full four teaspoons of ground or of grated fresh ginger. I like that you you know this by heart. Yeah, well, I just because you it. tested I the recipe seventeen times. Yeah, and you just made this. I just made it. And what I love about this, which is like I think like people sometimes like in this farm to table sort of generation we now live in, like. This is canned pumpkin. This is not like, oh, you have to go get your own pumpkin or squash or whatever and peel it and roast it. Like, we're just getting stuff straight from the can, right? Yeah. And what? can I just footnote there, always Libby's and nothing okay. else. I tested Why? this with, forget what brand it was. I tested this with um, another just organic canned pumpkin because we had happened to have run out of Libby's and the whole cake had changed. It was- Really? There was like a tinny astringency to the flavor of it. What about what about consistency? Consistency can vary too. A lot of canned pumpkins are more watery right. than others. So people like Libby's for how consistent it is. Yeah, and, it's and like sort of creaminess. It's, it's creamy. It's not watery. It has a pretty neutral flavor. Honestly, it kind of it doesn't really lean in any particular direction. So it lends itself well to just being the base of something like this. All right. So then, in the actual process, it seems like it's pretty straight ahead, right? It's stupid easy. I'm gonna take. Kind of, I'm gonna take a bite Please. right now. Would you like the? Do people like the end pieces? I'm not. I'm not no. here for the end. The no. heel. Go like, for the middle. When my mom used to make meatloaf when I was growing up. I was like the end piece. Yeah, of the because meatloaf. that's because you get like Maillard reactions on your meatloaf. Crispy, exactly. Maillard. I don't think you need that. Do you want to explain the, the Maillard reaction? It's just the caramelization that happens to meat when it when it browns. Yes, I believe it's when the amino acids and the sugars like commingle, yeah, and then that's where aroma and caramelization and all that. Good yeah, stuff after comes water from. cooks off. Yeah. So, all right, I'm not going to do the end piece then. Yeah, I recommend a middle piece. Middle, which this is, is like why kind I of cut. a middleish piece. It has a nice, um, almost like a turmeric hue, kind of a little bit, right? Yeah. Do you know what that comes from? Turmeric? No. No. <laughs> uh, what? Uh, I think it comes from the olive oil, which is like a bright oh, green color. Oh, you do. Oh, see, typically, I would, I would imagine. Back in the day, if my mom made pumpkin bread or cake, she would just use vegetable oil. Yeah, and you totally could here. But I think what makes this bread dynamic is the fact that there's olive oil that's paired with the pumpkin. So there's a lot of actually savory ingredients in it. And then it's all getting balanced with a people, good amount of sugar. People love when we chew into the microphone oh, yeah. on the podcast. It's, yeah. We get a lot of letters about how much they love that. So I think, yeah, so I think the color is coming from that bright green mm -hmm. olive oil. It's a whole cup of olive oil in the cake. Well, that's another thing. Like, people who don't bake cakes are often like, well, you use how much oil on a cake? Yeah. Like, you need, that's what makes it That's why moist it's moist, and, and it'll last together. for days. All right, so what we haven't talked about is next to the cake is this little ramekin of sorts of this, like, pale blonde swoosh of airy, creamy, like salted <laughs> maple butter. Yeah. This is insane. Yeah, so that's really simply just whipped butter. Room temperature butter that gets whipped for like four minutes. Why don't um, we always whip our butter? It's so good. I don't know, because how often do you have room temperature butter sitting around? I feel like that takes a little bit of foresight. Mm -hmm. It's usually cold, and then you're like, I don't want to wait for it to warm up. So what are we whipping whip it, it in? I did it in a stand mixer with the whisk attachment. You could do it with an um, electric beater. Okay, but you don't need a paddle. You don't need a paddle. Yeah. No, I did the whisk. Um, you just let it rip for like four minutes. It How gets much super butter fluffy. Do you that's three. That's one and a half sticks of butter. So three quarters of a cup. Okay, and so you're doing the butter. I'm talking with my mouth full. And then what are you doing? Drizzling in the maple syrup, or what? Yeah. So then you're drizzling in while you're beating. Drizzling in a quarter cup of maple syrup, and then at the last minute you add a little bit of flaky salt. 
And you do four minutes just to aerate it more? Yeah. If you do it any less, it'll be the 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 longer that you whip it, the fluffier it gets. Yeah. So. so with something like this, though, I mean, this is kind of like a party trick in that you're not going to put this back in the fridge because then the air goes out of it. Right? Essentially, you're not going to. You actually could. You could put it back in the fridge and, and then let it, it come out. back. Cause it, but who's going to do that? Really? Yeah, just leave it out. God, this is good. So what sort of response have you gotten? What Do, do people say the recipe is working? Do they like it? Like, What's the, what's the feedback? I've gotten people? a lot of best pumpkin bread ever as a general response. Like where? Which, on, on the Instagram? On Instagram, on the site? DMs, mm-hmm. on reviews on the um, website of the recipe. I think that most pumpkin breads that people encounter like at a coffee shop have a canola or vegetable oil so it's a more neutral oil there's not that like grassy savory undertone to it and i don't think they're as moist and sweet like i feel like this is kind of t- take took everything to the nth degree. Well, I think that's interesting because there's, there is that sort of, I don't say depth of flavor, but there's a sort of a convergence of like that salty and the sweet and the grassy and the and the, the spices and then the sugar and the moistness of, 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 the, of, the, of the pumpkin. What about toasting it? Is that possible? Yeah, my dad actually did that um, on his birthday. Oh, really? Yeah, funny anecdote. He made the cake and then he saw that BA was regramming everyone's posts about it and he texted me and was like wtf why didn't they regram mine and i was like dad you didn't post it but your dad said wtf yeah literally said wtf <laughs> they didn't post my pea bread and i was like that's because you didn't post it and then you also can't get regrammed if you don't gram and dad don't call it pea and bread. also yeah WTF. what uh, did he toast it in a toaster oven or a stand it, toaster? it looked like it was in a toaster oven and then he put a dollop of the butter on it and then that's it got all nice. melty all right. and, props to dad i also feel like griddling it Griddle. you know so in a little bit of butter, like in, in a, a little of that butter. Oh, oh my God! So you oh do the, my God! The salted maple butter. Yeah, slick oh that. Throw God. it in a nonstick pan. Oh, so you would slick it? You wouldn't put the butter in the pan. You would yeah, butter so. the bread, flip it both sides. I think See, so. There. Oh my God! I don't know what more to say other than this is. I, I now understand why people are freaking out over this. Great. Can uh, I have a slice? You no. You you've had enough. You did, yeah. You uh, don't get right. any more. I've yeah. had it like twenty five <laughs> like, times. I would like a slice. I'm going to pass you the thing. Uh, you can find. Molly's recipe on bonappetit.com. It is called pumpkin bread with salted maple butter, and it is crazy good and moist and delicious and perfect for fall. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Molly. Thanks for having me. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and Christina Che and produced and edited by Emma Wartsman. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wartsman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.